There are some people that, uh, for them, they have uh, degenerative bone diseases. Uh, sometimes they're born with this, or over time, the, the bones tend to curve and then do things like that. But uh, doctors have different ways of treating some of these deformities. Some of them they can do something with, but oftentimes they brace uh, whatever it is, perhaps a leg that is... Uh, uh, bowing some because of a uh, weakness of bones or just uh, the way that the bone has been formed and shaped. And they, they can do some bracing to help uh, process along to perhaps straighten out uh, some of the things that are going on there. But there is something that they do that's kind of extreme uh, from sounding from us. And, and uh, you just can't imagine going through this. But uh, in some cases, they decide that uh, for the bone to be straight or for it to be where it needs to be at, they actually surgically break the bone. Uh, they go through a process either through just kind of cutting the bone in half or they break it uh, one way or another. And it's you say, that sounds kind of harsh that, you know, you're going to break a bone. You don't want a breaking of a bone when you're doing anything else because that's bad. But in this case, uh, with the doctors doing this, they find that the bone oftentimes is, uh, it's been broken. It regenerates itself and actually the joint that's there is stronger than it's ever been because of the things that go on there. And that it's actually a good thing when you have some of these situations where things aren't straight, things aren't right for a doctor to come along and break the bone and set it straight. And when you think about the Scripture, there is some hinting at this fact that sometimes there is pain required in order for things to go right. I was thinking of this uh, this morning. There's a passage in Proverbs that describes uh, this statement, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And you kind of go, what in the world are you talking about when there's the faithfulness of a friend and there's wounding that takes place? I mean, we wouldn't want some mad man walking around with a knife slashing whatever direction he might be uh, that's dangerous but when you have a tool and an instrument like a knife in the hands of a doctor someone that knows you well uh, and is able to perhaps wound you that in the long run it has a healing quality to it it has a th ability to take care of problems and what we have this morning, as you've already read this morning, is a story about God breaking an individual. It's taken him a long time to have this happen. At this point, uh, Jacob could be anywhere between 60 uh, and almost 90 years of age. They really don't know, but he could have been about that age uh, when this event took place. It took God that long to finally get Jacob here. In fact, the last 20 years is the story was described when he leaves Bethel that the sun sets. And so it's kind of a, a dark period in his life where things aren't quite going the way they should. They aren't quite right because he's still like he's always been, the deceiver, the manipulator. Though over time, as we've seen in the last uh, two different passages we've looked at, that Jacob is beginning to acknowledge God in things. He's beginning to, to see God in some things, but he's still kind of that... Well, living up to his name, the one who's always tripping others up, that's what his name Jacob meant. And we get to this passage of Scripture, it's a, a, a passage of Scripture that we all need. And we need to be reminded of it. Because there are times that God's grace breaks us to change us into what we ought to be. 
God in His grace sometimes breaks us to change us into what we ought to be. This story is one that uh, we have started uh, and are trying to get to the end of it. Jacob's exodus from uh, his uncle by the name of Laban, who is an exact reflection of Jacob. And last week we got to the point where Jacob is broken free of him. They have this tower that's set up, this pillar that's set up, and stack of stones, and they, they call it uh, Mizpah, and it was to be a witness that you aren't going to cross this line, I'm not going to cross this line, and God makes sure that you don't cross the line, and that you don't do anything to hurt my family. That's why they set it up, and they basically made this agreement, we're not going to come after each other anymore, and if we do, God's going to take care of the situation. So that is over with. 20 years of Jacob being with Laban, being cheated 10 times as he describes it uh, in his dealings with Laban over and over again, he's being cheated. And he's finally broken free of that. And he turns and sets his eyes on the fact that he's going to go to this land that's been promised to him. And he remembers one person, a man by the name of Esau, his brother, one he had cheated. And the last statement that he had heard from his brother was this, I'm going to kill him. That's the last statement that he remembers about Esau. That's why he had to leave because there was this threat of death that Esau was going to inflict upon Jacob. And so he's just escaped. And in God's grace, uh, what happens here is he suddenly has freed himself from Laban and all of a sudden the specter, this, this remembrance of uh, Esau brings him frightened, uh, frightened uh, into a frightened state. God does something in his grace. God's grace, as you find out as we start off this passage, gives us encouraging reminders. You go, what's the encouraging reminder? It's often in the story just looked right over because it's only a verse or two, but it is significant. It's those first two verses where you read it, that Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, and Jacob saw them, and he said, this is God's host, and he called the name of that place Mahanaim. The idea that there's two camps going on here. And you just kind of go, okay, that's nice, and you go on with the story. But this is significant because the last time that Jacob had been in the promised land, he came to a place called Bethel. He went and rested his head on a stone. And in the middle of the night, he has this vision of this, well, it's called a ladder, but it's a staircase with angels going up and down on that staircase. And you go, well, what was that supposed to be significant of? That God is ministering back and forth to Jacob and that he is, as he makes the promise to Jacob, that he's going to take care of him and bring him back safely into the land of Israel. Well, the land of Canaan at the time. It's not named Israel yet, but the promised land. That this is going to happen. He's going to come back here. And so as Jacob turns from Laban, and he's not in the promised land yet, he's got to cross over the Jordan River to get into that. But as he does this, there is this camp of angels, and it's either right next to his camp where he sees these angels, or it's the idea that they're actually surrounding his camp. And what he's reminded of is that God said back way 20 years ago, I'm going to get you back here and you're going to offer sacrifice eventually in Bethel to me and you're going to see that I'm going to have taken care of you. And God has this reminder of something that happened before where he said, I promise to take care of you. And he sees these angels and for him, it's a comforting thing. 
It's God reminding him of something that he had heard 20 years before, and now God brings it back in his grace, and he says, I am going to take care of you. Just as I promised, as you saw 20 years ago where I promised this, here's these angels that are there reminding you the fact that I will take care of you. So in this story, for us, we just kind of go over this, but this is, this is a massive reminder for Jacob of something that God had promised and it's just brought to his, his mind again as he's considering the fact, I've got to go and face Esau. But then you see this, uh, I will say this about God's grace, is that God's grace does not keep us away from difficult circumstances. You know, sometimes people think that if they're followers of God, they're going to rest on beds of ease, as the one hymn talks about. That somehow if you're a Christian, that life will be easy. That there won't be any hardships, especially if you're focused on God and considering Him, that you're somehow going to escape all of the difficulties of life. And sometimes God His grace brings us into difficulties. In this case, the difficulty is Esau. As you have the story here in verses 3 through 8, Jacob is going, okay, what I'm going to do is set things up. And and you have this whole thing that he is considering that uh, I have all of these things that I have, these different animals I have and people that are working for me. He's beginning to think, I probably ought to give Esau some sort of gift, uh, but uh, I'm going to at least send him a message in advance to let him know I'm showing up. And uh, we'll see how things turn out. And the messengers go out. They tell Esau Jacob's coming. They come back and they tell Jacob that, well, he's coming back. Look at verse 6. The messengers returned and they said this, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to meet thee. Okay, good. But then there's this phrase right at the end, with 400 men. Now, Think about this. If you're going to greet somebody that you know, you don't usually bring back up. If you think that they're okay and they're a friend of yours, you're not bringing back up. Well, this is what Esau has done. He's brought 400 men with him. And this reminds us of the occasion before where uh, Abraham goes chasing after the people who captured Lot. And he's got a group of men he's brought with him uh, to go after him. This is what is the, the thought here that Jacob realizes, uh-oh. Esau's coming back and he's armed and he's not coming here to give, you know, give me a hug in front of these 400 men and go, this is my brother. That's not the thought. It's that these men are coming along to take everything that Jacob has, including possibly his life. And so here Jacob has been brought, even though God has just shown him, I'm with you, my angels are here. It doesn't mean that God says, I'm not going to take you through some difficult circumstances. I'm going to bring you to your brother, and you've got to face up to some of the things that you caused 20 years ago. But in the midst of this, what we suddenly see is Jacob, Jacob's beginning to change. God's worked on him for 20 years, helping him see his own reflection in Laban all this time. And when this event happens, he does do the one thing that we're called to do. And the third thing we see in this passage is simply this, that God's grace listens to our prayers. 
He does the very thing he's supposed to do. Though he's not perfect, he's not been a good man uh, throughout the years. He is a follower of God. He has some faith in him. And when the situation arises where he's in trouble, he does the thing that we're all called to do. To go to God. And what you find is the longest prayer okay, in, in the uh, whole book of Genesis Though you say it's not a long one, they don't usually record all the the prayers, and it's not that many people were praying, it's just this is the longest recorded prayer we have. But all the parts of this are what you would expect to find in any prayer. These are things that should be a part of the prayer. Let's just go and look at the the prayer here. Verse 9, he starts this way, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saith unto me, return into thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I mean, what does he start off with? Well, he's recognizing in this prayer of praise to God. He is calling upon God's name. This God, who's the God of Abraham, who took care of Abraham and brought him the long distance from Haran and brought him into the land and protected him there. And the God, who's the God of my father Isaac, who took care of him in the midst of things that he did. This God, who is so incredible, God, I'm calling upon you, remembering the fact that you've been good to Abraham, you've been good to Isaac. You know, that's the type of thing that we do when we come to God in prayer. Hopefully, we don't just merely come to him and start asking requests. That we recognize who we're coming before. What kind of an individual that we're coming to, that we're actually spending time talking to him. Why is he worthy of us having conversation with him? Well, it's because of, and we can go through, and there's the names of God and the things that he does. This ought to be a part of our prayers. He's including this, starting off in his prayer. You've done this, Isaac. You've done this with Abraham. And besides that, he comes and not only says, you're a God that's like this, he says, you've promised certain things. When you pray, you ought to have a knowledge of the Scripture where you can go, God, you've said this about yourself, and you've promised this. You say, what are the promises? You see it there in verse 9. He says this, that God said unto him, return into thy country, into thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. He's remembering what has just happened a few weeks before where God told him, it's time for you to leave and we'll get you back there. And he's saying, you're the God, you see what's going on? Esau's here, it doesn't look good, but you're the God who has promised to take care of me and do well with me. And you get down to verse number 12, he closes off this prayer with a promise He said this, and thou saidest, I will surely do thee good and make thy seed as the sand of the seed, which cannot be numbered for multitude. I mean, it looks like Esau is coming down to whittle down the family. And he's just simply saying, Lord, remember, you made a promise that my descendants would be as the sands of the sea. He's clinging to promises. He's calling upon God's name. And he is also confessing, we would say this, confessing sin. Look at verse number 10. I remember this verse. This used to be Pastor Jones' uh, life verse uh, for those of you that uh, remember him preaching on this several times. But this statement is, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies and of all the truth which thou hast shown unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan and now I'm become two bands. I've got a large group that's with me. I mean he just simply recognizes this i don't understand why you are and it, the, the word there is that you are uh, of mercy is the fact that you've been loyal to me 
that you've been loyal to me though I have wandered astray and I've gone and done my own thing at times and tried to solve problems without your help. You've been a God who has been loyal to me. This is the word that is oftentimes translated in our our, our Old Testament, loving kindness, uh, that idea, or loving loyalty. You've been loyal to me. I mean, really, when you come into the presence of God, there's no reason for him to answer you. Because you fail time and time again. And what he recognizes, you're a God who has been loyal to me when I've wandered from you and I'm just acknowledging the fact I haven't been worthy of any of the good things you've displayed to me. I'm not coming into your presence proud. I'm not coming into your presence uh, with uh, claiming my own ability. I'm just simply saying all the good that's happened is because you've been a good God. I'm not worthy not worthy of any of the mercies that you've shown me, and any of the truth which thou hast shown in thy servant, that you've actually displayed things about yourself to me. I'm not worthy of that. I mean, think about this. Are we worthy, any of us in this room, to come into the presence of God? You find the description of us throughout the Scripture were people who wandered away. We were rebels with God. We fought with God. We went our own way. We did our own thing. What standing do we have before God? It's because God's been gracious and merciful. Because we're what? Sinners. I mean, he confesses his sin. He has praise to God. He clings to the promises of God. He confesses failure. And then he makes his requests. I mean, that's why we oftentimes are praying to God, is communicating with him, is that we're just simply making requests. Here's the need that he has, verse number 11. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Lord, it's not looking good. He's coming with an army of 400, and I don't have any resources. He's got small children with him, himself, and a few servants. How is he going to battle against Esau and 400 armed men? He's got no resources. And so he's just simply saying, Lord, you've got to be the one to rescue. And I don't know how you're going to do it, but I need rescue. In the midst of this, God listens to his prayer. God in his grace listens to this man who has been kind of scattered in his service for him the last 20 years. But God listens to prayer. Now we get to verses 13 through 23, and and as you read through it, it sounds like, once again, that Jacob is manipulating the circumstances. But what I'm going to say is this, that God's grace allows us to prepare for the future. What Jacob does is he prays and talks to God, but God doesn't tell us just to not blindly blindly do nothing in circumstances. What he's looking at is simply going, okay, I've made my prayer to God. Now what do I need to do to plan for this meeting of Esau? I've uh, put my dependence on God, but there is some expectation that I'm going to at least have some forethought in what I'm doing. Good planning. Okay, sometimes our good planning doesn't work out. But in this case, he's simply going, okay, what am I going to do? And you had this story, and starting in verse 13, right on to verse number 22, you have Jacob basically stacking up all his goods in front of him. He's got groups of individuals taking his camels out in one group, and the goats out in another, and the sheep out in another, and the cattle out in another. And basically what he's doing is he's putting them as maybe pawns out in front of him, but he's basically saying, if Esau is coming to do me harm, he's going to get delayed by 
Okay, the sheep that are there and the camels that are there, and that's going to delay them some. And, and the thought is, is by the time he gets to mother, children, myself, that he's going to be like, okay, you've made me rich. All that stuff that you took from me by taking my birthright and my blessing, all this riches, because Jacob is not a poor man. I mean, he's wealthy enough to be envied by Laban and his sons because he's got all sorts of wealth. He's a wealthy man. So the thought is here, Esau's going to come in and take all of this, and maybe by the time he gets to Jacob, he goes, okay, you've given me everything back that you're stolen, that he felt like he had stolen. And Esau, or Jacob, is willing to give that up for the sake and protecting of the family, his wives, the children, sons and daughters that we have listed here and he plans for this i mean some have asked was he wrong in doing this uh, in planning and as you read through the text there's nothing that the narrator says in the story that indicates what jacob is doing is wrong i mean god expects us when difficulties are coming and bad things are about to happen he does expect us to have some good planning to use some wisdom to try and go how am i going to meet this situation but ultimately the answer is going to be in god and so for us, as you look at this, God allow, in His grace allows us to prepare for the future. And He organizes this, sends out the groups in front of Him, sets up the groups in, in the way that they should be, sends His wife and children out, sends Himself out as the way that they should be. And you're kind of left with, okay, what's going to happen the next morning? But you have an interlude, which is the most important part of the whole story before Esau ever shows up. And what we find uh, in the last section of the, this passage is just simply this, is that God's grace sometimes breaks us, but for good reasons. Sometimes God's grace breaks us, but for good reasons. I mean, when you get to verse number 22, or 24, it's just this statement, Jacob was left alone. And you ought to just have it there for a second. He's got all this prep and all this stuff that he's gotten together and all the people together, but now he's alone. It's the middle of the night. It's dark. There's, the, the intention is that it's mysterious circumstances. Eerie circumstances, if we want to put it that way. And this is what's going on in the midst of the story. The events of wrestling had, uh, as uh, you think about this uh, as we go along here, all of a sudden, he's not thinking about Esau anymore. It's dark out, he's by himself. And then all of a sudden, he is wrestling with a man by the brook Jabbok. And, and some have made a statement here that Jacob and Jabbok and the word for wrestling, which I am not going to try and pronounce in the Hebrew, all sound alike. But here he is, wrestling by this uh, river with a man. And you're going, who suddenly just starts wrestling with an individual in the middle of the night? We're not told any of the details how this started. I mean, how do, how do you suddenly start wrestling with somebody in the middle of the night that you don't know? I mean, you're usually avoiding people like that. And so was there a sudden assault from this man and there's this wrestling match that takes place? We don't know. And can you imagine having a wrestling match that goes all night? I mean, this is not a five minute, or as it is with wrestling, I think it's three minutes when it's real wrestling, not the fake wrestling that many people watch. 
You got three minutes and, and then the match is over with. Now, this is all night that this takes place, and there's this back and forth that goes on, and the wrestling, and you're not sure what's going on. It's just kind of a mysterious circumstance. Who is he wrestling? Why is he wrestling with him? No, none of these things are explained. But we do have some details that suddenly become very important at the end of the day, as you see, or at the end of the night, it says this, they wrestled there a man with him till the breaking of day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. If you know anything about wrestling, the most important thing about your wrestling is not your arms or anything else. It's your legs. The legs are what help you drive a person to the ground. It's what helps you give you stability so that you don't get knocked over. And in this wrestling match, as it goes along, this individual realizes that he's not going to prevail with Jacob. And so he reaches out, and it could be either this, that he touches Jacob's thigh. The word there that means to simply touch can mean touch, or it can mean strikes the thigh. But whatever the case is, it's a, a, the ability to take out one of the strongest joints the joint between uh, your, your hip and your leg, is, uh, as far as uh, you're concerned, is one of the strongest joints. And all of a sudden, it's out of place. And it's at that point, I think Jacob suddenly realized, I don't know what he was thinking before, who he was wrestling with or what. There, there's no explanation of this. But for a person to either be able to reach out and touch the thigh or to be able to reach out and just strike it and it's suddenly out of place, he realizes, I'm not wrestling with a man. I'm wrestling with somebody else. It's either the angel of God or God himself that I'm wrestling with. But whatever the case is, it's not somebody I'm going to win with. And they, well, they're trying to get away. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to cling to him. And you have this breaking, but here you get Jacob where he suddenly realizes that he's got no advantage now. And so what he does in verse 26, uh, he said, this man who struck him, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. I, I know you're a messenger from God. I know you, you, you're somebody like this and I'm not going to let you go until I have a definitive idea that you're going to bless me. One has said this, here's a man who has made his way by trickery and deception, by conniving and self-sufficiency, and now the shadowy foe brings Jacob to the point where he wants Jacob to or where Jacob where he wants Jacob to be desperate. He brings him to the point of helplessness where he realizes that blessing cannot come from his own plans, sweat, fast moves, but only by begging and pleading to God for it. Jacob is physically broken, but will not give up. Now it is a battle of words, and Jacob clings for a blessing. You say, what has happened here? God has finally taken this man who has been strong. I mean, think about this. He's worked for 20 years out in the field. He's a strong, healthy individual, and God breaks his health. In an instant, he does this. And he realizes, I've got nothing to fall back on as far as strength. I need God's help. 
One says this, the text teaches that sometimes God in His grace will oppose you, may cripple you in order to force you to face Him so that you will have to struggle with Him. Hang on for dear life until you realize that only He can give you what you need. He does not oppose or cripple in order to destroy, crush, or mangle, but to get you to seek Him only. Another one has said this, the Lord must on occasion cripple self-sufficient believers in order to bless them. You know, we would look at the story of Jacob to this point and go, okay, he's, he's drawing closer to God. I mean, he, he's finally talking about God. He's finally praying to God. Uh, he's getting somewhere. But as we all know, God's not done working on us. And there are times where He has to shape and form us and it requires dramatic pressure in our lives. It may come in the form of sickness or illness like what happens to Jacob here. It could be through circumstances of family, which you do have here. Esau is suddenly bearing down upon him. It could be through finances. It could be through circumstances where God suddenly gets you to a point where you're on your knees and there is nothing else you can look to except for God. And God does this. And you go, well, why does God do that? Now, our fleshly assumption is this, that God is mean. That God is cruel, and the devil is going to whisper that in your ear. When those times come, that is going to be one of the things where you're going to face God and you're going to go, this is unfair. How could you do this to me? You're a mean God. And what we forget at times is that God doesn't do these things by accident. Anything that happens in our life is by God's allowing that event to happen. And there are things that He doesn't allow happen in your life. And you go, why? Because He doesn't view those as things that you need that are going to bring about good. I mean, I think about this when I think about the life of Job and you have an individual there that you go, why did all these bad things happen to him? And you go, because Satan did it to him. You're going, "Uh uh-uh. Satan couldn't do anything unless God allowed that event to take place. You read the story in Job. It's very clear. It gets to the first part where it says this, that only you can touch his family and all of his goods. And you get to chapter 2, and God finally goes, well, you can take away his health, but you can't take away his life. He at least limits it. And you go, Okay, so God allows bad things to happen and He limits when those bad things happen. And then you understand this, that He could have allowed a whole lot of other things to happen to you that didn't. I mean, that's what goes on here in the life of Jacob where he is suddenly hammered by something that he has no answers for. He can't get around it. It's there and it's in his face and he knows he can't do anything about it. And the only thing that he can do is not to blame God, but to cling to Him. That's the only hope he has. And so he clings to this one who he's wrestled with, knowing it's either a messenger of God or God himself. And he says, you've got to give me a blessing because I can't do this myself. Look at what's gone on now. I'm not even fit to stand. And I need your blessing. Say, what does God do here in his grace? Well, he's fine in verse number 27. 
mean, I find this a little bit ironic because this is God asking. But he says this, verse 27, he said unto him, what is thy name? You're like, what? Who are you? I mean, come on, it's God. Why is he asking this question? Do you realize that God sometimes asks questions not because he needs the answer? We need to, the answer, the thing is, is that we need to hear the answer ourselves. God says, what is your name? Now, we hear it as Jacob, but what he's answering is this, deceiver. We say this, you're a sinner. Yeah, I'm a sinner. That's what he's admitting. I'm not perfect. There are things that aren't right. There aren't good. Uh, Yes, I live up to my name. I'm a Jacob. Verse 28. And he said, and I'm just going to put it here, God said to him, thy name shall be no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men thou hast prevailed and with men hast uh, and hast prevailed. See, what's this new name that he's given? Israel. Well, it can mean one of two things. Prince of God or victor with God. You say, oh, did he defeat God here? Is this what it means? No, he prevailed with God. We sometimes talk about people who are prevailing in prayer. What's the idea there? A person who's clinging to God until they get an answer. And his new name is this, is that he has had something happen to him because he's clung to God. And here's your new name. You're not a person who's Jacob, who is self-sufficient and going around and trying to deal with problems yourself and take care of this. No, what you're going to be known for now is a person who has a dependence upon God and clings to Him and knows Him and is depending upon Him to take care of things, not yourself. This is a complete change of character that takes place in the life of Jacob. He's a different man from this point. Now, it's not to say that he's perfect, because we're going to read some stories here, but he's not, he's not the same manipulative individual. He's not going around deceiving people and attempting to do that. He's not doing that anymore. He's a changed man because God has broken him. And the only thing he can do is to cling to God. You want to put it this way, his name changes from sneaky to victor. He is changed. And you say, are you sure that there's a change here? There are all sorts of things that are put in the story to indicate the fact there is a definitive change here. It's not just a temporary change. There's something that's taken place. Because after you get done with this, Jacob asks, he says, I pray thee thy name. And he said, wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? Well, why are you asking? You know who I am. You, know, you, don't, you don't need that answer from me. You know. And God blessed him. But then you have this, verse 29, or excuse me, verse 30. And Jacob called the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, uh, and my life is preserved. The idea of the name Peniel is simply this, the face of God. Here Jacob starts off with Bethel where he is, you know, in that situation. I mean, you've got these two situations bookending 20 years. He is there at the house of God where he sees this staircase going back and forth and God communicates certain truth to him. And then 20 years of just kind of doing his own thing, but now he's coming back and now he says, I've seen God 
face to face. And he names this place Peniel. He goes from Bethel to Peniel. He's at the house of God, and he's now seen the face of God. Then you have this as that he goes on. He passed over Peniel, and verse 31 says this, the sun rose upon him. You go, what? What? The sun rose upon him. Why, why do we suddenly have that uh, as a statement? Well, you ought to write, mark in your Bible right next to that, Genesis 28 and verse 11. Because just before Jacob gets to Bethel, it says the sun set. No references to the sun ever again until we get to this point. And it's like the light's on. Okay, we're going into a time of darkness in Jacob's life where he's going to have to go and struggle through 20 years where he's just kind of manipulating circumstances. And then all of a sudden, here he's a changed man and the sun just comes up over the horizon. And you just kind of go, that's a dramatic way of showing there's been a change that takes place. And you're going, absolutely. And not only that, do you have this whole statement that he halts upon his thigh and this weird statement that the Jews wouldn't eat uh, the certain uh, the material between uh, the thigh there when it came to eating meat because it was in honor of what happened to Jacob in memory of what happened to him when the change took place. But I want to say, a section we didn't read shows that Jacob is a changed man. It's in the next chapter. Because you see in verse number one of that, we've not read this yet this morning, but it says this, And Jacob lifted up his eyes, and look, and behold, Esau came with him with 400 men. He divided the children of Leah under Rachel under the two handmaids. And he put the handmaids and the children foremost, and Leah and her children after, and Rachel and Joseph hindermost. And he passed over where? Before them. You know, what is he doing? He's no longer putting gifts out in front. He's not long. He got all these different animals that perhaps will slow Esau down before he gets to the family and him. Esau has no fear anymore because he's clinging to God. He's at the front of this group that's there, and he meets Esau out front. You go. That's a change. Yeah, because Jacob before would have manipulated the circumstances. But here, Esau's not his fear. He's not afraid of Esau. You go, why? Because he's got a God that he's clung to. And this is a God who always keeps his promises. And he's a man who's clinging to him and will not be afraid of what man can do to him. You go, why? Because God's with him. He's a changed man. Now we read a story like this and you kind of go, well, that's Old Testament. You know, God of the Old Testament, some people think, is a mean God. You know, God of the New Testament is a God of love. And that, that's a misreading of the whole of Scripture. But you have people assume that and say that and even say it as they're preaching from pulpits. It's a sad thing that they do that because you look at the Old Testament and the New Testament, God doesn't change. His methods don't change. How he does things don't change. And I want us to turn over to a passage in Romans chapter 8 because this passage in reading through the life of Jacob was one that I just had to come back to again and go, this is how God always works. That he brings us to our knees sometimes. In order to change us, you go, okay, uh, where is that uh, at? Well, look at Romans chapter 8. 
It's talking about before that, that the world right now is waiting for God to redeem the world. It's, it's the, all of creation is groaning because of the sin that's in this world. But sometimes we, we uh, as individuals suffer under what's going on in this world and there are no answers that we have. Look at verse number 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth us in our... What's the word there? Our infirmities. Just like Jacob has been put to the point where he's weak, he can't even stand. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. There are circumstances that you're going to come into and you're going, there is no good solution here. God, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm at least clinging to you and I need hope. And what you find is that in the Godhead, you have the Spirit of God coming alongside you in a situation like this, making the requests that need to be made clearly before the throne of god but in this situation you've got a person a christian who's been brought to their knees and is just kind of going i don't know what to do now we might think well that's because god is cruel and mean you know he just he just delights and bring us into difficult circumstances just to show that he's he's in charge he's the boss and and as you go through romans 8 you're going "Uh uh-uh The Apostle Paul, as you get to verse number uh, 28, he says this, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And you kind of go, well, what good is there in God breaking me? Yeah, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to His purpose. And, you know, I don't really quote this when people are going through bad times right away. You know, because at that point they want to, you know, they got the raw emotions and they, they might want to strangle you at that point if you make that kind of a, a trite statement. But the truth is, is that all things work together for good to them that are called according to his purpose. And you go, well, why is it good? Because God has a plan. It's not accidental that anything has happened in your life. Because you look at verse number 29, it then says this, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. What you have there is it's talking about what God did way, way back in eternity past and what he's going to do right on into the future and glorifying you and all of these things in between. And you go, why is God doing all these things in my life? It's right there in the center that we might be what conform to the image of his son do you realize that sometimes god brings those difficult allows them to show up in our life and we go where did this come from and god what are you doing we ought to realize that those things are brought in for us to be what pressed transformed molded to look like Christ. Remember, when Christ came to earth, it wasn't a bed of ease for him either. He's the one who suffered the cruel death on the cross. 
unimaginable things that happened to him and he suffered through those things and so sometimes what god calls us to do is to learn what christ went through and to be more conformed to the image of the son because we've experienced those things we've seen those things in the midst of christ's suffering he's still clinging to the father well guess what sometimes what god does to us is that he brings us through situations like that so that we look more like the son where we're clinging to the heavenly father and going i don't know what to do and i need your hope but the only thing i can do to you is to cling to you it's the only thing i have and you go is that for my good absolutely because we were created to fellowship and to be with God. And those times, what God does is that He sometimes strikes us or sometimes touches us and puts us into circumstances we don't know why. But most of the time, if you give it time and you look back, you realize that those were the times where God shaped us the most. Where God was able to do things that it would have taken a long period of time in regular circumstances to have those things in our life that weren't right corrected and are running from God to be corrected. But it's those times where suddenly events come in where God is able to do some very quick changes. Shape us, mold us, and you go, what is that? That is God's grace. God's grace breaking us so that we will be what we ought to be so like jacob learned from his life like the new testament declares god is not a god who just brings in bad circumstances to make our life miserable no it serves a purpose for us to look more like what we ought to be and for us as modern day uh, new testament individuals it's to look like christ and to be more like him so learn from jacob i don't know what you're going through i don't know what god may have done this week to burst upon your life and do things to you in your mind do things to you but understand this that god is looking to shape you and perhaps he's just doing this to get you a little further down the line quicker to becoming more like his son so trust him, cling to him, and find him to be a good God. Not a God who is doing evil, but one who just is looking to meld us into what we should be. Heavenly Father, in a room filled with people, and I don't know what you've done in their lives from a human standpoint to fracture them, to crack them, to break them. tendency for the world would be to become bitter but for us as believers we at least have the the ability to come into your presence to cling to you to to seek your face to hear your words as they're in the scripture and there are times where you bring us to the breaking point and we go why what are you doing But may we realize that those situations are part of your grace, part of your plan, part of what you're doing. 
mainly in our lives to, to make us more like Christ, but perhaps through the light of what you're doing to us in the life of others that you are able to do a work that you wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. So Lord, help us to learn from this story where you have a man who is a self-sufficient follower of God to a man who's broken but yet is clinging to God. And is not afraid of anything that happens because he knows his God is with him. Lord, may we be ones that aren't frustrated and broken and bitter at what you're doing, but may we see and cling to you in those times where it seems like we might be completely broken. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to turn your hymnals to hymn number 268. When I started looking at this passage, this is a, a passage that came to my mind and thought this is appropriate for us. You know, how firm a foundation for who? The saints of the Lord is laid for our faith in His excellent Word. We, we can go and find out about our God in an instant. We can open up the Word of God and see what He's declared about Himself. We, we have that. But you get to those last two verses, verse 4, When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only, and here, this is the, the, the hard part of this, but it goes with the message this morning. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It's part of God's design to take us through fires. Take us through difficulties. And then you get this, verse 5. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose is clinging to God. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never. This is God speaking. Forsake. So this is a song going right along with us this morning. We're going to sing the first, the fourth and the fifth of this is our closing song for this morning of number 268, How Firm a Foundation.